over and over again, and that is that God is sovereign and he's king of the world. Uh, and, uh, and we've also been looking at a lot of earthly kings that have decided that uh, their pride was going to overwhelm uh, their trust in God. We've looked at Nebuchadnezzar today, we're going to look at another one. We've been looking at some kings that have exalted themselves and been prideful and full of pride. But I want to read to you today from about a king who uh, did not let pride get in the way of what he needed to do. And as we think about this passage in Philippians 2, many of you know where I'm going, I'm hoping it'll just spur us on towards what we're about to do as we remember the death that Jesus died for us, even though he's ruler of the world, even though he's the king of kings and lord of lords, he was willing to humble himself to the point of death. And so in Philippians chapter 2, this is where we'll start right in verse 1. So if there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only into his own interest, but also to the interest of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God as a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. This passage is a passage that reminds us that at the end we see the glory, we see the reign, we see the power of Christ, the fact that every knee will bow to him, and he is that king. He is the king who is ruling now and who will rule forevermore. But then earlier we see what he did to get to that point. He didn't puff himself up. He didn't take his deity to the point where he was not willing to be humble to go to the cross. And we read in Philippians 2 that that's exactly what he did. That Jesus, the king, the ruler, king of kings, humbled himself to become a man and to sacrifice his life, to experience death, to pay for sin. Even though he didn't deserve it, even though he's the rightful king, he humbled himself to serve. That's what we see here in Philippians 2. And so today as we come to the opportunity to remember his death, to eat a piece of bread that we remember how he broke his body and we drink some juice to remember how he shed his blood for our forgiveness. Remember, this is the king of the world that gave himself for us. And that should humble us too. And that's the whole point of this Philippians 2 passage. Not just that Jesus was humble as king, but that we too should follow in his footsteps. That humility should be part of our lives. And so today as we take the communion elements, I want us just to think about What Jesus did, sure, that is the first, we remember what he's done, we remember who he is, we remember the gospel, we remember that he lived a perfect life so that he could die a death that we deserved, But and he did that for us on the cross to forgive us of our sins, he rose again to prove that he had power over sin and death, and that his sacrifice was acceptable to God, that he ascended to heaven, and that he's waiting to set all things right once and for good, once and for all. And we remember that as we take this 
cup and bread. It's not just a piece of bread. It's not just a cup of juice. But it is a reminder of what Jesus has done. It's a reminder of Jesus' humility. And it's also a reminder of how we should be living in light of his sacrifice and in light of his humility. So with that being our backdrop, I'd like to just give everybody a few moments as we play some music just to consider all that you've just heard. Consider God's word. Think about his humility. Think about the death of Christ. Thank him for that. Reflect upon that. Don't take it for granted. And prepare yourself, prepare your heart in a sense to remember what he has done, to remember his humility, and to remember how we should live in light of that humility. Let's do that now. Again, the bread we're about to eat is to remind us of the the body that Jesus took as a man to break for us because he was humble enough. He served us. The king of the world served us through breaking his body, and we remember that. In 1 Corinthians 11, we're reminded of what this is all about. It says, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Let's take it. Next he took the cup, and we are reminded of uh, his blood through this cup. The color is meant to remind us of the blood that he shed on the cross. Because without the shedding of blood, there is no remission, there is no forgiveness of sins. And so we know that Jesus shed his own blood The king of the world shed his own blood so that we could be forgiven, so that we could have a restored relationship with God. That's what we remember when we take communion. This this isn't about us, and it's not about just the power of remembrance, but this is about really, truly knowing what God did for us in Jesus. And so as Paul continues in 1 Corinthians 11, this is what we read. In the same way, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. I'd like to end our time of communion by just offering a prayer of thanksgiving to Jesus. And then as soon as I'm done praying, I do have a few quick announcements. And then we'll get to our preaching time. But let's pray. Lord, we want to praise you and thank you for your great humility that you chose to come to this earth as a man to live a life as a man to die the death of a man all at the same time your perfect deity was there and yet you chose to humble yourself 
for our forgiveness so that we could have eternal life, so that we could have a repaired relationship with God, with you. We thank you for that. Lord, help us not to take that for granted. Help us to remember that every day, not just once a month. Help us to truly reflect upon your humility. And Lord, would you help us to live in humility? Because we need your help in that. And so we want to pray that this morning as we remember your death, as we remember your humility, as we remember what has been done for us and who you are. Lord, would you remind us that you are our only hope, you are our only strength, and you are our only source of grace for everything in life. And I pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. A few quick announcements for those of you who can are, are listening and hearing. Uh, but uh, first of all, if you're looking in the bulletin, most of you might know this, but this was brought to my attention. Do not set your clocks back next Saturday. If you set your clocks back next weekend, you will be two hours late to service. Uh, set your clocks ahead. It is spring ahead. So make sure you note that. So if you, if your sole source of information on what you should do with your time is the bulletin, uh, probably should probably have some other sources. But if that's all you have, just make sure that it's you set your clocks forward, not back. All right. So making sure that that is clear. Um, and there is nothing in the bulletin about this, but I did want to, because several of you have had some questions. Uh, we do know that Easter is three weeks away, I think. Uh, my, I think that's right. Um, and uh, we are going to have Easter services. Here's how it's going to work, just so you know. And I will, more information will be coming out later because there's a few other things we might add in. But for now, uh, we're going to keep our services as they've been. Still a 10 o'clock singing service, 11 o'clock preaching service. On Easter, it's going to be the same it's been. Uh, there may, like I said, there may be a few additions. And keep your, your eyes open, your ears open to know what's going to happen. But just if you're making plans for Easter, that's how it's going to be. We're just going to keep it the same it's been. Uh, and we'll do the 10 o'clock singing, 11 o'clock service. So just wanted to make sure everybody was aware of that so you weren't making different plans based on different thoughts. Uh, there is no breakfast this year. Uh, just too many complications trying to feed a huge group of people uh, in that way. And so we won't be doing that this year, which I know is disappointing. Um, but again, let's remember what Easter is all about. It's not about what we can eat but about the Lord who gave himself for us and rose again. And so that's what we're going to remember as we go into Easter. Uh, so those are my announcements. Uh, it's not quite 11. Uh, so maybe uh, we can play a little music before Justin comes up, and then we'll hear from God's word and Daniel again.
Things are going to get worse. Some of you may remember Pastor Ken's message from Habakkuk chapter 2 when he highlighted how the prophet told his Jewish audience, essentially, you think things are bad now? Just wait. They're going to get much worse. Daniel lived through the much worse Habakkuk was talking about. Habakkuk had announced that Babylon was going to invade Judah to execute God's judgment against the sin of God's own people. Society had become terribly broken. Suffering was rampant in Judah. And now God announced ahead of time that He would send the Babylonians to destroy everything. Teenage Daniel and many of his friends may have heard that announcement, and then they lived through its fulfillment. Babylon came, took young Daniel and many other Jews away from their homes, away from their families, and sought to reprogram them to becoming Babylonian, as we read about in Daniel chapter 1. While resistance might have been futile, At least a few endured the reprogramming, but retained their identity as God's faithful people. And we see Daniel especially thriving in Babylon. In chapter 2, he interpreted King Nebuchadnezzar's dream of a statue destroyed by a stone, and the king rewarded him with a promotion. In chapter 3, his three faithful friends who had benefited from his promotion with promotions of their own refused to bow down before the king's idolatrous statue. And so the enraged king attempted to execute them in a blazing furnace. Somehow, they came out unscathed. In chapter 4, some 20 years later, The same king has yet another bizarre dream, this time about a giant tree being chopped down and an angel announcing that the one represented by that tree was going to live like an animal for a little while. Daniel, again, shows up to interpret the dream, direct the message home to the king that he needed to repent or else he was going to lose his authority and his mind. But these four chapters are not really about Daniel, his three friends, or the pagan king. Rather, they are about Yahweh, the God of Israel, the one true God, God of gods and Lord of kings. All four of these stories have been portraying different aspects of the gospel of God's sovereignty, the good news that our God reigns. He exercises His sovereignty to execute judgment against the wicked, and He exercises His sovereignty to save His faithful people. His sovereign rule is on display in the movements of kings and nations across the globe and throughout history, and His sovereign rule is on display in the lives of individuals. And yet, things get worse. Things get worse for God's people, And things get worse for all people, ultimately. Back in chapter 2, Daniel identified the golden head of the statue in Nebuchadnezzar's dream as representing him, King Nebuchadnezzar, and his Babylonian empire. As much as this king spoke words of praise of Daniel's God on multiple occasions, he was still the one God sent into Judah and into Jerusalem to punish and destroy the Jews, and the temple of Yahweh. By the time Nebuchadnezzar has his last terrifying dream, which we looked at last week in Daniel 4, God had already used him 
as His tool of judgment. The Jews are scattered throughout the Babylonian Empire, living in exile. After His humiliation, the Lord did restore the king to His throne, as promised, for probably a few more years. But King Nebuchadnezzar died in 562 B.C. We can begin to perceive the gold of the statue fading. When we come to Daniel chapter 5, 23 years have passed since Nebuchadnezzar died. Babylon experienced its own deterioration during those years. If you'll put that next slide up, Brooke, the, get a, you get a little bit of a family tree here to think about how Nebuchadnezzar connects with Belshazzar in chapter 5. Some of the kings that you'll see on this slide are mentioned in passing in other places in Scripture. The book of Daniel has no interest in any of them. We might wonder what happened to Daniel during these years under the reign of these other kings. Well, just notice that Daniel survived through all these years. Daniel survived through at least two political coups. Daniel survived as the Babylonian Empire deteriorated to the point we see it here in Daniel chapter 5 of Daniel's historical account. Now, if you can see up there on the screen on the right side, if you can look at number 6 and number 7 there on the right side of the family tree, the final king of the Babylonian Empire was actually a man by the name of Nabonidus who according to Babylonian records may have married one of Nebuchadnezzar's daughters named Nitocris. Somewhere between 553 and 550 BC, Nabonidus named his son Belshazzar vice-regent while he ran away from the capital. Nabonidus had some religious beliefs that didn't sit well with some of his other officials. And it appears that they encouraged him to take a holiday, uh, a religious pilgrimage, if you will, to, uh, because he was serving and elevating a different Babylonian god than the one that they were used to. Whatever the real reason for why he ran off, he remained the king of Babylon even while he lived away from the capital. But Belshazzar was in charge in the capital, and it was right to call him king. He was a particularly foolish man. Now, I tell you all this history that's not here in the text, because some of these historical details are going to make sense of certain details that we do have in the story in Daniel 5. As we will see, this is the end of the Babylonian Empire, the very last day. So thinking back to Nebuchadnezzar's dream in chapter 2, we're seeing the transition from the golden head of the statue to the silver chest and arms. This is the first aspect of the historical fulfillment of what that dream portrayed. Yahweh, the God of Israel, is giving the kingdom of Babylon into the hands of another kingdom, an inferior kingdom, as Daniel said in chapter 2. Speaking of Daniel, at this point, he's about 80 years old. Also, we noted in our first message in this series, some of the chapters of this book are not in chronological order. It could be helpful to remember that at this point in Daniel's life, he has already experienced the visions of chapter 7 and chapter 8. 
When you read those chapters and find out what Daniel saw, ponder whether what God revealed to him in those visions might have helped equip him for this moment in chapter 5. Nevertheless, we find things getting worse, even here. But the message of Daniel 5 is this. God executes judgment against those who exalt themselves and refuse to honor Him. Let's get into the story. We find Belshazzar exalting himself against Yahweh. Look at verses 1 to 4 of Daniel chapter 5. King Belshazzar made a great feast for a thousand of his lords and drank wine in front of the thousand. Belshazzar, when he tasted the wine, commanded that the vessels of gold and of silver that Nebuchadnezzar his father had taken out of the temple in Jerusalem be brought, that the king and his lords, his wives, and his concubines might drink from them. Then they brought in the golden vessels that had been taken out of the temple, the house of God in Jerusalem, and the king and his lords, his wives, and his concubines drank from them. They drank wine and praised the gods of gold and silver, bronze, iron, wood, and stone. Babylonian history makes note of the feasting that occurred on the last day of the Babylonian Empire. In fact, we can date this with precision to the night of October 11th, 539 B.C. Two historical details are fascinating to note here. First... The Persian armies had been invading the Babylonian Empire over the past several weeks. And two days before this, they had captured King Nabonidus, Belshazzar's father. It's likely Belshazzar had gotten the news. Secondly, the capital city of Babylon was a nigh-impregnable fortress. It's likely that Belshazzar's feast was a bit of an arrogant thumbing of the nose at the Persians. A kind of, nah, 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 you can't get me in here kind of move. Immature, I know. But that's exactly the kind of man that we're dealing with here. Almost as soon as the drinking party begins, an idea seems to strike the young king out of nowhere. When he tasted the wine, as soon as he started drinking, He looked at the cup he was drinking from, and he must have thought, oh, we have better dishes than this. We have those shiny golden and silver vessels that my grandpa took from that fancy temple in Jerusalem. Let's get those and drink from them. Now, some of you will notice that I said grandpa, but your Bible says Nebuchadnezzar, his father, in verse 2 and throughout the passage. As I showed on the family tree earlier, it's possible that King Nabonidus, the real official last king of Babylon, had married one of Nebuchadnezzar's daughters, so that Belshazzar is Nebuchadnezzar's grandson. The Aramaic word for father, like the Hebrew word for father, is flexible. It can refer to father, grandfather, great-grandfather, or put as many greats as you like, grandfather. It basically means ancestor. And the word for son works the same way. In thinking through this, I realize that this is actually a fulfillment of prophecy. Jeremiah specified that Babylon would fall under Nebuchadnezzar's grandson. The Lord says through the prophet Jeremiah in Jeremiah 27, verses 5 to 7, 
It is I who by my great power and my outstretched arm have made the earth with the men and animals that are on the earth, and I give it to whomever it seems right to me. Now I have given all these lands into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, my servant, and I have given him also the beasts of the field to serve him. All the nations shall serve him and his son and his grandson until the time of his own land comes. Then many nations and great kings shall make him their slave. We're seeing the fulfillment of the last part in this chapter. Daniel, as he writes the story, wants to show a tight connection between Belshazzar and Nebuchadnezzar. For Daniel's purposes, Nabonidus is completely unimportant. And that makes sense because Daniel may have had absolutely zero dealings with Nabonidus. For all we know, 80-year-old Daniel has been enjoying Babylonian retirement for many years when he gets summoned on this historic day. Nevertheless, the important thing to see is the blasphemous, idolatrous, sacrilege Belshazzar is committing in using these golden vessels this way. These vessels had been sanctified, set apart for use in the Jerusalem temple. Nebuchadnezzar had taken them out of the temple. At the same time, he took Daniel out of Jerusalem. But recalling chapter 1, Nebuchadnezzar had treated them with respect. He had stored them in the temple of his God. Belshazzar instead puts them to profane use as part of his drinking party. And then the partiers go so far as to toast the gods with these vessels. If the owner of these vessels were to see what they were doing, how do you think he'd respond? Well, as it turns out, the owner does see. And the owner does respond in a way that gets the king's attention a disembodied hand, and some unreadable writing appears. Let's look at this in verses 5 to 9, the unreadable writing. Immediately, the fingers of a human hand appeared and wrote on the plaster of the wall of the king's palace opposite the lampstand. And the king saw the hand as it wrote. Then the king's color changed and his thoughts alarmed him. His limbs gave way and his knees knocked together. The king called loudly to bring in the enchanters, the Chaldeans, and the astrologers. The king declared to the wise men of Babylon, Whoever reads this writing and shows me its interpretation shall be clothed with purple and have a chain of gold around his neck and shall be the third ruler in the kingdom. Then all the king's wise men came in, but they could not read the writing or make known to the king the interpretation. Then King Belshazzar was greatly alarmed, and his color changed, and his lords were perplexed. The king's response to this mysterious occurrence is physical unraveling. Where the ESV says his limbs gave way, the King James Version has the joints of his loins were loosed. Or, we could translate it more literally, the knots of his loins were untied. Either his hip joints have failed so that he crumples over into a chair, or he has lost control of his bladder or his bowels. Either way, not a pretty picture. More on that in a bit. The king shouts frantically, 
for the wise guys to come in and do their thing. And to whomever can make sense of it, he offers to make him the third ruler in the kingdom. Why the third ruler? Well, because Belshazzar is the second ruler, the vice-regent under the authority of his father, King Nabonidus. Well, as we readers of Daniel would expect, the wise guys can't make sense of it. Notice that it's not just that they couldn't interpret the meaning. The text specifically says they could not read the writing. Why is this writing unreadable for them? Over the years, several guesses have been made. If you'll put that next slide on the screen, here is Rembrandt's famous depiction of this from the 1650s. It depicts one possible way of understanding why the writing was unreadable. If you'll focus your attention up there into the the lighting on the top right of the uh, artwork there, those letters are actually Aramaic letters, very finely painted by Rembrandt. However, as you may know, Aramaic, like Hebrew, is to be read from right to left. When Daniel shows up and tells us what the words are, they are ordinary Aramaic words. However, as Rembrandt has painted them here, the words are put together from top to bottom rather than from right to left. And that's a possibility. Daniel perceived what the others couldn't, that the letters needed to be read in a different direction than normal. However, a simpler explanation seems more likely to me. When Aramaic was originally written, like Hebrew, vowels were not written, and spaces between words were not always included. So, in your sermon notes, you've probably noticed a series of English letters that don't make any sense. You can put those up on the screen on the next slide. English consonants there all running together. I've provided you with an exercise, a puzzle, if you will. Now, I must ask that you don't distract yourselves during the sermon trying to figure it out. Look it over later this afternoon. Send me your guesses via email or text message. I'll give you one clue, and you got to listen to the sermon to get the clue, but here's the clue to look for. The answer to the English puzzle here is similar to Daniel's answer. Now back to the text. Try to focus. An arrangement of letters like this could be combined with many different meanings. Many different words could be strung together this way. So I imagine the wise guys had guesses but they couldn't get a consensus, and they couldn't make sense of the words together. So everyone is stumped, and the king is petrified. Enter the queen, who is probably the queen mother, since we've already learned that Belshazzar's wives are there at the drinking party with him. The queen mother, who may have been Nebuchadnezzar's daughter. Listen to her words as she reminds the king of a humble reader, from the past. Look at verses 10 to 12. The queen, because of the words of the king and his lords, came into the banqueting hall, and the queen declared, O king, live forever. Let not your thoughts alarm you or your color change. There is a man in your kingdom in whom is the spirit of the holy gods. 
In the days of your father, light and understanding and wisdom, like the wisdom of the gods, were found in him. And King Nebuchadnezzar, your father, your father the king, made him chief of the magicians, enchanters, Chaldeans, and astrologers, because an excellent spirit, knowledge, and understanding to interpret dreams, explain riddles, and solve problems were found in this Daniel, whom the king named Belteshazzar. Now let Daniel be called, and he will show the interpretation. She was not among the partiers, but she either heard the commotion from her quarters in the palace nearby, or someone sent a message to her about the situation. She describes Daniel very much in terms that Nebuchadnezzar had used. He has the spirit of the holy gods, wisdom like the wisdom of the gods. And King Nebuchadnezzar had promoted him to chief of the wise guys. She must have been around to know all these things. And she has confidence in Daniel. So she encourages Belshazzar to bring him in. She indicates that Daniel can solve problems, which is literally untie knots. As, in, as Daniel writes these words from the queen's mouth, he uses the exact phrase that described what happened to the king. The knots of his loins were untied. I think his original readers would have gotten the joke. That's the last thing the king needs, is to have his knots untied. They've already been untied. When he does call him in, he goes right into mocking this reader from the past. Belshazzar mocks the reader in verses 13 to 16. Then Daniel was brought in before the king. The king answered and said to Daniel, You are that, Daniel, one of the exiles of Judah, whom the king my father brought from Judah? I have heard of you, that the spirit of the gods is in you, and that light and understanding and excellent wisdom are found in you. Now, the wise men, the enchanters, have been brought in before me to read this writing and make known to me its interpretation, but they could not show the interpretation of the matter. But I have heard that you can give interpretations and solve problems. Now, if you can read the writing and make known to me its interpretation, you shall be clothed with purple and have a chain of gold around your neck and shall be the third ruler in the kingdom. The queen had referred to Daniel in respectful terms, identifying him as the former chief of the wise guys. Belshazzar instead immediately puts him in his place, referring to him as one of the exiles of Judah. He reminds Daniel of his abduction as a teenager, of his status as an exile forcibly removed from his home. Nevertheless, he quotes the report from the queen, including the line about Daniel being able to untie knots or solve problems. He wants Daniel to read the words on the wall and then explain what they mean. He says, if you can, how unlike Nebuchadnezzar, who in chapter 4 had essentially said to Daniel, I know you can. I'm reminded of a story about Jesus in Mark 9. After he comes down from the Mount of Transfiguration and he meets a father whose young boy had been possessed and abused by a demon... Jesus' disciples had been unable to cast the demon out of the boy and bring relief. And so he approaches Jesus directly as soon as he sees him. And then he says to Jesus, If you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. Jesus' response in Mark 9.23 is sharp. If you can, all things are possible for one who believes. A gentle rebuke 
for a desperate and fearful father in order to crystallize and strengthen his faith. Mark 9.24 continues, Immediately the father of the child cried out and said, I believe! Help my unbelief! Jesus is patient with our incomplete and weak faith. He prods it in order to grow it. He stretches it in order to strengthen it. But in Daniel 5, we're not dealing with a man who believes anything. We're dealing with a pagan king whose desperation has not humbled him and who is facing the judgment of God. So he offers to reward Daniel with a promotion if he can read and interpret the message. Before Daniel does that, however, he is going to provide Belshazzar with a history lesson about the humbled ruler, Nebuchadnezzar, Belshazzar's grandfather. Look at verses 17 to 23. Then Daniel answered and said before the king, Let your gifts be for yourself and give your rewards to another. Nevertheless, I will read the writing to the king and make known to him the interpretation. O king, The Most High God gave Nebuchadnezzar your father kingship and greatness and glory and majesty. And because of the greatness that he gave him, all peoples, nations, and languages trembled and feared before him. Whom he would, he killed, and whom he would, he kept alive. Whom he would, he raised up, and whom he would, he humbled. But when his heart was lifted up and his spirit was hardened so that he dealt proudly, He was brought down from his kingly throne, and his glory was taken from him. He was driven from among the children of mankind, and his mind was made like that of a beast, and his dwelling was with the wild donkeys. He was fed grass like an ox, and his body was wet with the dew of heaven, until he knew that the Most High God rules the kingdom of mankind and sets over it whom he will. And you, his son, Belshazzar, have not humbled your heart, though you knew all this. But you have lifted up yourself against the Lord of heaven, and the vessels of his house have been brought in before you. And you and your lords, your wives, and your concubines have drunk wine from them. And you have praised the gods of silver and gold, of bronze, iron, wood, and stone, which do not see or hear or know. But the God in whose hand is your breath and whose are all your ways, you have not honored. First, Daniel dismisses the offer of promotion. At Daniel's age, I'm sure he wants nothing more to do with Babylonian politics. Moreover, he knows what's about to happen. It is a meaningless offer. Second, He agrees to read the words and explain their meaning. But then he launches into this history lesson, summarizing much of what we know from Daniel chapter 4. Notice again how Daniel emphasizes God's gracious sovereignty as the Most High God gave Nebuchadnezzar royal authority and glorious splendor. I can't help but chuckle a little bit at Daniel's line in the middle of verse 19. Whom he would, he killed, and whom he would, he kept alive. Except those three Jewish men who refused to bow down to his idolatrous image in chapter 3. But Daniel's message for Belshazzar comes from Nebuchadnezzar's later experience with Daniel's God. And as an important backdrop, Daniel wants to make sure to give credit to his God for all the power and status the great Nebuchadnezzar had. 
That's the point that Nebuchadnezzar himself had to learn the hard way. Since he took credit for all his accomplishments, since he exalted himself against the one true God who had given him everything, that same God took it all away. That experience of humbling, which we looked at last week, was for Nebuchadnezzar to learn the lesson that the Most High God rules the kingdom of mankind and sets over it whom he will. Daniel doesn't mention the gracious restoration of Nebuchadnezzar to serve a few more years as king of Babylon. Instead, he presses the point home to Belshazzar with these haunting words, though you knew all this. The lesson was not just for Nebuchadnezzar. As the angel had said in the dream in Daniel 4.17, the lesson was for the living. Belshazzar knew the story. The record was from Nebuchadnezzar's own hand. Listen again to verses 22 and 23. And you, his son, Belshazzar, have not humbled your heart, though you knew all this. But you have lifted up yourself against the Lord of heaven, and the vessels of his house have been brought in before you. And you and your lords, your wives, and your concubines have drunk wine from them, and you have praised the gods of silver and gold, of bronze, iron, wood, and stone, which do not see or hear or know but the God in whose hand is your breath and whose are all your ways, you have not honored. Fourteen yous. Though you knew all this, you have exalted yourself against the Lord of heaven. Though you knew all this, you have not honored the God in whose hand is your breath. I'm reminded of Romans one twenty one. For although they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Who's the they? Everybody. Every human being on the planet throughout history knows their Creator. Romans 1, 19 and 20 explains, For what can be known about God is plain to them, Because God has shown it to them. For His invisible attributes, namely His eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. God has imprinted creation with His signature. Indications of His eternal power and divine nature that there is one great God who created all that exists, a powerful, personal being who was, has always been there and who has brought everything else into being. How do we get from although they knew to they did not honor Him? Paul said in Romans 1.18 that it's because we're all suppressing the truth. And because we're suppressing the truth... God is pouring out His wrath against us. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. How do we stop doing that? We need a Savior who can satisfy God's wrath. We need a Spirit who can enable us to believe the truth. More on that in just a bit. But it's important for us as Christians 
to feel the weight of the warning here. Though you knew comes across to us as well. We are a privileged people. Essentially unhindered access to God's Word in a multiplicity of good translations. A seemingly infinite reservoir of information about any topic we want to understand. Advanced technology that enables us to communicate across the globe at the touch of a screen or the click of a mouse. Christians, especially in America, have received many gifts from the Lord. The freedoms we currently enjoy in this nation are remarkable when contrasted with the challenges and restrictions that many of our brothers and sisters in other nations experience daily. What does that say about our responsibility? Doesn't our increased knowledge increase our accountability? Didn't Jesus say, Everyone to whom much was given, of him much will be required. And from him to whom they entrusted much, they will demand the more. We could compare ourselves with the people in other nations, and we would see a measurable difference in the gifts we've received and the knowledge we have access to. And it is this kind of contrast that makes Daniel's words to Belshazzar pack their punch. The king knew what his grandfather had experienced. The message of that experience was clear. Yet he acted like his grandfather did before he had learned his lesson, and even worse. The unreadable writing has been sent as a message of judgment against King Belshazzar. So let's see Daniel read the unreadable writing. Look at verses 24 to 28. Then from his presence the hand was sent, and this writing was inscribed. And this is the writing that was inscribed, Mene, Mene, Tekel, and Parsin. This is the interpretation of the matter, Mene. God has numbered the days of your kingdom and brought it to an end. Tekel, you have been weighed in the balances and found wanting. Perez, your kingdom is divided and given to the Medes and Persians. So the hand wrote four Aramaic words on the wall. Each of the four words is a measurement, a weight. The mene is perhaps more familiar to you as the mina, or some would say mina. Aramaic is mene, Hebrew is mina. Jesus told a parable about ten minas. Notice that the hand seems to have written this first term twice. Then you have the Aramaic word tekel, which is equivalent to the Hebrew shekel. Finally, the Aramaic word parsin is the plural form of perez, which is a weight valued as half of a mina. Even if the Babylonian wise guys could have read the four words, how would they have made sense of this? They probably would have assumed that the words were intended to form a sentence of some kind so that the words communicated a coherent message. And when you insert different vowels among these consonants and you divide the letters differently to make different words, you can make a a whole host of different coherent sentences. But as it turns out, the message is not strictly about the weights. Instead, Daniel takes each word as a kind of pun. 
His interpretation puts a clever spin on each word by turning it into a related verb. Each word communicates two related ideas. First, the mene indicates that God has numbered the days of Belshazzar's kingdom. This is a word of judgment against Babylon. Your days are numbered. The verb translated numbered is related to the Aramaic mene. Secondly, from this same word which was written twice on the wall, Daniel adds that God has brought the kingdom to an end. Your days are numbered and it's all over today. The second word, tekel, is a word of judgment directly against King Belshazzar personally. Daniel says, you have been weighed in the balances. The verb translated weighed is related to the Aramaic tekel. God has weighed Belshazzar and he lacks weight, lacks substance. He has become worthless because of his arrogance and pride. The third word contains a double pun. Daniel says, your kingdom is divided. And the verb translated divided is related to the Aramaic perez. But the Aramaic perez also sounds like the Aramaic word for Persia. And God has given Babylon to the Medes and Persians. Yet again, we see God's sovereignty on display. He gives the kingdoms of men to whom he wills. He raises up rulers and he brings them down in every kingdom and nation, both back then and today. The last few verses of the chapter give a clipped summary of the aftermath. Belshazzar exalts Daniel, but Yahweh, Daniel's God, humbles Belshazzar. Good verses 29 to 31. Then Belshazzar gave the command, and Daniel was clothed with purple. A chain of gold was put around his neck, and a proclamation was made about him that he should be the third ruler in the kingdom. That very night, Belshazzar, the Chaldean king, was killed. And Darius the Mede received the kingdom, being about 62 years old. King Nabonidus had been captured by the Persian army two days earlier. Then in the middle of the night, after the feasting was over, interrupted by a message from the one true God, interpreted by an aged prophet of God, the Persian army spent hours burrowing under the city of Babylon, using the waterways to gain entry to the impregnable fortress. There was no battle in Babylon, no fighting that night. The city surrendered, and the arrogant king Belshazzar was unceremoniously executed. With Nabonidus in custody and Belshazzar dead on the ground, old man Daniel was suddenly the highest-ranking Babylonian official. In verse 31, we are introduced to Darius the Mede, and lots of ink has been spilled over the historical identity of this man. I won't try to explain the full nature of the debate. Since the text says he received the kingdom from God, I believe the, this is the Medo-Persian king, also known as Cyrus the Great. Jump down to the end of chapter 6 for just a moment. In Daniel 6.28, we read this summary statement. So this Daniel prospered during the reign of Darius and the reign of Cyrus the Persian. From that statement, it sounds like Darius and Cyrus are two different rulers with two different political terms. However, in Hebrew, Aramaic, and also Greek, it is not uncommon that the word normally translated and can function as a 
clarifying conjunction rather than a simple coordinating conjunction. So it's possible to translate Daniel 6.28 as, so this Daniel prospered during the reign of Darius, that is, the reign of Cyrus the Persian. Now that begs the question, why does Daniel refer to him as Darius the Mede at the end of chapter 5 and Darius throughout chapter 6? I suggest two reasons, one personal for Daniel and one biblical. First, as we'll see in Daniel chapter 6, Daniel develops a personal relationship with this king. He becomes one of his top advisors, and he knew him well. It makes sense that Daniel might provide a personal detail and refer to his friend by a name that doesn't show up in official imperial documents. Secondly, Daniel may want to provide a link for his Jewish readers to biblical prophecy that highlighted God's usage of both Medea and Persia as his agents of judgment against Babylon. For example, Isaiah 13, 17-19 says, Behold, I am stirring up the Medes against them, who have no regard for silver and do not delight in gold. Their bows will slaughter the young men. They will have no mercy on the fruit of the womb. Their eyes will not pity children. And Babylon, the glory of kingdoms, the splendor and pomp of the Chaldeans will be like Sodom and Gomorrah when God overthrew them. And famously, Isaiah mentions the name Cyrus on two occasions, prophesying specifically that he would be the man God would use to bring the Jews back to the land of Judah and rebuild the temple. From Persian historical records, we know that Cyrus's mother was a Mede, and his father was a Persian. We also know that Cyrus was 62 years old when he conquered Babylon. So it's likely that Darius the Mede is Cyrus the Persian, the king to whom God gave the Babylonian Empire. Now what do we take away from this chapter for us? It takes on a bit of a warning edge. God is not mocked. Belshazzar thought he could get away with arrogantly, blasphemously, idolatrously using what belonged to Yahweh, the God of Israel. The Apostle Paul says in Galatians 6, 7-9, Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that will he also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption. But the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. And let us not grow weary of doing good, for in due season we will reap, if we do not give up. In the context, Paul is specifically addressing the situation in a church family when someone comes to the aid of a brother or sister who is ensnared in some sin. Someone has attempted to restore a sinning brother or sister. And now, Paul is warning the one who receives this kind of help about the danger of not responding appropriately. He is warning of the danger of continuing in sinful behavior. Doing so will lead to a terrifying harvest on Judgment Day. We can sometimes slip into thinking that our little sins don't register on God's radar. But Paul here warns against that kind of foolishness. 
God is not mocked. People will be held accountable for this kind of thinking, to be sure. And Paul quotes a general principle that we're all too familiar with. You reap what you sow. But he then applies it specifically to Judgment Day through a metaphor. I see this because of the mention of reaping corruption on the one hand and eternal life on the other. Paul pictures the flesh as one field we could sow into and the spirit as the other field. He warns that sowing into the flesh field will only produce a crop of corruption. But he promises that sowing into the spirit field will produce a crop of eternal life. Corruption is probably a reference to eternal punishment, as it is set opposite of eternal life. I don't think he's listing two options for the Christian here. Rather, he's warning people in the church who claim to be believers, but are caught in a transgression, that if they continue sowing in that field, the flesh, they will show themselves to be non-believers. What does sowing sowing to the Spirit mean? Well, I think he elaborates on that in verse 9, calling all Christians to keep on doing good deeds without growing weary, without losing enthusiasm. Why does he need to encourage them and us not to lose heart in doing good? I suspect it's because we so often measure the success of our efforts in terms of visible results. We seek to provide encouragement, support, or help to someone else, or we share the gospel with someone who doesn't know Jesus. And there doesn't seem to be any positive response. Or we try to help help hold someone accountable in church. We try to help them overcome some sin, and they just keep going back to it. We often quote Isaiah 55, 10 and 11, or part of it anyway, to encourage and motivate us to keep speaking God's Word. For as the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return there, but water the earth, making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. What we need to remember when we appeal to these verses and say, God's word never returns void is that God sends His Word both to save and to judge. Like with Belshazzar, this message was sent to announce His doom. As the Apostle Paul knew all too well, often sharing the gospel is met with rejection and hostility rather than faith and repentance. Nevertheless, the encouragement Paul gives in Galatians 6 is to keep on speaking. Keep on doing good. And he gives a promise of a guaranteed harvest. In due season, we will reap if we do not give up. In due season. Well, who decides whether it's due season or not? God does. God is the one who delivers the harvest to those who sow in the field of the Spirit. Now, ultimately, he's referring to the reaping of eternal life. But he's probably also got in view the results of our sowing, the results of our good deeds along the way. This fits quite well with Paul's assuring words in 1 Corinthians 15, 58, 
Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. So, to all who have ever looked at your hard work and wondered what good it does, the Apostle Paul assures you that because of the resurrection of Jesus, because of the Holy Spirit's work, and because of our loving Father's plan, investing our time and resources in pointing people to Jesus and His Word is never wasted. And that was a bit of a rabbit trail. God is not mocked. The truth is that the writing on Belshazzar's palace wall is a message that God could rightly send to each and every one of us, especially the middle part of the message. You have been weighed in the balances and found wanting. The word wanting means deficient, insufficient, lacking. What is it that we lack? Well, according to Romans 3.23, we all sin and lack God's glory. At the end of the day, that is humanity's fundamental problem. Normally, we read Romans 3.23 and we think of God's glory as His standard of holiness that we fall far short of. And it is certainly true that we fall short of God's standard of perfection. But God's glory is so much more than that. God's glory is His significance, His importance. The Hebrew word literally refers to His weightiness. If we are weighed in the balances and found lacking, it's because God's weight is in the other side of the scale. But how can sinful human beings, whether an arrogant king or a hard-working middle-class American, ever be sufficient? Something's got to change, right? What we lack has to be provided, and the problem of sin has to be dealt with. The good news is that God has provided everything we need. God loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. As 1 John 4.10 says, The eternal Son of God became the man, Jesus, who perfectly obeyed God throughout His human life. If He were weighed in the balances... He would not have been found wanting. He didn't lack the glory of God. He embodied it. John 1.14 says, And the Word, that's the eternal Son of God, became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. And He, unlike all other human beings throughout history, never sinned. 1 John 3, 5 says, You know that He appeared in order to take away sins, and in Him there is no sin. He came to take away our sins. Instead of taking over human kingdoms by force, He offered His life as a sacrifice in the place of sinners who deserved to die. He propitiated or appeased or satisfied God's wrath against sin and sinners. He accepted condemnation and punishment for sins He never committed. The condemnation and punishment for the sins I've committed. Then He rose from the dead, having succeeded in His mission. God accepted His sacrifice. 
He then left this earth physically and took his rightful place at the right hand of God, sitting on his royal throne, having all authority in heaven and on earth. Well, now what? Because every bit of my sin, all of my failure, all of my not measuring up has been punished. All of my debt has been paid in full. He offers me complete forgiveness and cleansing. Hearing such good news, I say, yes, Lord, forgive me. My life is yours. But what about the glory? What about the glory I lacked? In a marvelous twist, the glory of God is the very thing that enabled me to say yes to my Lord. Paul explains it like this in 2 Corinthians 4, 3 and 4. And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. That was true of me before I began to trust Jesus. If you're a Christian today, that was true of you. If you are listening to this right now and you don't know Jesus, that is true of you right now. Satan, the God of this world, has you blinded. God's glory could be right in front of you, but you cannot see it, cannot hear it, cannot perceive it, cannot respond appropriately to it. Can't, can't, can't. How is blindness overcome? How does one who was blind now see? Ironically, to get sight, we need to hear a word. Paul adds in verse 6, For God, who said, Let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Someone has to turn on the lights in our hearts. God has to shine the light. He has to create light where there was only darkness. Just like He did in the beginning. He speaks and the Spirit gives life. If you're a Christian today, that's what happened to you. If you're not a Christian today, that's what you need to happen to you. Confronted with the glory of God, God Himself must turn on the lights and enable us to see. When we see His glory, transformation happens. This is what Paul had already said in 2 Corinthians 3.18. And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. But this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. It is the Spirit who lifts the blindness. And it is the seeing that results in transformation. Glorification is a process that is going on right now for those who know Jesus. We are being transformed from one degree of glory to another. And the transformation happens as we keep looking at Jesus in the Scriptures. We must see the glory to become glorified. The gospel is unreadable writing to those who are perishing. 
The gospel comes across no plainer than mene mene tekel ufarsin to those who haven't had the lights turned on yet. As with Belshazzar, we need an interpreter, and that interpreter must be the Holy Spirit. Paul explains in 1 Corinthians 1.14, reading from the 2011 NIV, the person without the Spirit does not accept the things that come from the Spirit of God, but considers them foolishness and cannot understand them because they are discerned only through the Spirit. The person without the Spirit is the natural person. The person as he or she comes into this world. When we share Jesus with someone who doesn't know Him, someone who hasn't been healed from their blindness, someone who doesn't see, someone who hasn't been rescued, saved from their natural citizenship in the dark kingdoms of this world, they can't see Him as He really is. They can't recognize Him as glorious. The Spirit of glory must open their eyes first. He does that in conjunction with our sharing the word with people. As long as a person is alive, we should never give up on them and assume that they must not be chosen or they'll never be saved. Either we need to keep on sharing Jesus with them or we need to rest confident in God's power to save through the word we've already shared with them. After all, seeds don't always sprout immediately. In many ways, we find ourselves in the place of Daniel, responsible to share God's word to people who aren't really interested in knowing the God who sent the message. Daniel was promoted and praised for his various opportunities to speak before kings, but his preaching didn't result in conversions. Jesus instructed his disciples about what to expect. People will deliver you over to courts and flog you. You will be dragged before governors and kings who will deliver you over to tribulation and put you to death. And you will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. Wasn't the Great Commission the command to make disciples of all nations? So you'll be hated by all nations and you must make disciples of all nations. Yes. To whom much is given, of him much will be required. The call is for us to be faithful in proclaiming the gospel. Faithful in making disciples no matter the cost. The promise is that he will be with us no matter what. And he's in charge of bearing fruit. The message of Daniel 5 is... God executes judgment against those who exalt themselves and refuse to honor Him. It is the Word that brings this judgment. Our responsibility as God's people is to continue speaking the Word. The offer of salvation in the gospel message becomes a word of condemnation to those who reject the offer. But to those who respond with faith and repentance, the Word brings wondrous transformation during the few years of our life in this world, and a guarantee of eternal life in a new world with wonders that break the limits of human imagination. Those wonders are rooted in the person of Jesus and His glory. Look to Him now 
and you'll never cease gazing on Him with adoration forever. Ignore or reject Him now, and you'll spend eternity in agony with the words, though you knew all this, echoing in your mind forever. Exalt yourself now, and you will be humiliated forever. Humble yourself now, and you will be exalted and glorified forever. Pray with me. Father, thank You for this Word. You have acted in history to bring judgment on a wicked nation, and You do it all the time. Oh, Father, would You help us to take this warning seriously? Help us to be the kind of people who follow the humble King, the Savior of the world, and humble ourselves, constantly rejecting credit for the good things that come into our lives. Help us to be quick and eager to give You public praise for the good things that You give us, the great gifts. Help us to be satisfied with what You provide And help us to trust You, to trust You, especially with our loved ones who don't yet know You. Help us to trust Your power to save and not get so bogged down or tripped up by our inability to share the message well. Your power is so much bigger than our failures. Thank You for overcoming our weakness and even using our weakness to bring Yourself greater glory and to bring salvation to the nations. Equip us, we pray. Help us to glorify Your Son in everything that we do. In His name we pray. Amen.